uh, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. Thank you uh, for the songs that we sung. There is nothing better than to know you. There's nothing better than to be found in you, to be called your child, to be part of your kingdom, to be put on mission for your glory. There is nothing better. Help us, Lord, because this world tempts us with things that claim to be better than you. May we not be swayed. May we stand firm, knowing that these things, Lord, as the song says, will pass away. The things of this earth will pass away, but your kingdom will last forever. And so that is our, that is, for those who are followers of Christ, that is our home. We're anxious to get there. Father, in the meantime, may you help us as we open up your word this morning. Uh, Holy Spirit, would you help us to, to hear your word, to be transformed. Again, this is all for the glory of God. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I have a question I want to pose to you, and it's not a question I'm asking for a response, just a question for you to, to think on uh, to yourselves. The question is, who are you? Who are you? Who do you think you are? Now, I know that that seems like a very, very basic question, and you're absolutely right. It's a very basic question, but it is one of the most important questions to answer because the answer has everything to do with your identity. Who are you? Richard Grant, who's a well-known British actor, once said, the value of identity is that so often with it comes purpose. In other words, when you know who you are, you know what to do. When you know who you are, you know what to do, you have a starting point or a foundation, if you will, to build from and live your life. Again, you have purpose, you have a goal, meaning. So many people feel the pressure of trying to answer this question and end up defining themselves by various things. Some define them, themselves by their jobs, what they do. Oh, I'm a plumber, I'm this, I'm a sales associate, whatever. Some people define themselves by their financial or social status, what's in their bank account. Some people uh, uh, define themselves by their successes in life. Others by their appearance, how they look. And others define themselves by what people say or think about them. And for a moment, they kind of feel like, ah, oh, I've got some purpose, I've got some meaning, I can live my life, I know what to do. But what happens when people who put, attach their identity to success, what happens when they experience failure? What about those who um, attach their, their identity to their job? What happens if they burn out in their job? They can no longer work that job or they get fired from that job. What, uh, what about people who attach their identity to what people think, how people uh, uh, feel about them? What happens if they lose someone's favor? The very foundation of their identity is shaken and they frantically search to define themselves by someone or something else. One pastor put it this way, a stable sense of self cannot fully exist when we place our identity in external things other than Jesus. And why is that? Well, because life changes. Life changes. I mean, the, the last year, you're not the same person you are this year, right? And two, <laughs> praise the Lord. <laughs> 
And in 10 years from now, it's going to be a whole lot different. Life changes, circumstances change. And with that, for some, their identity. And this is what many would call an identity crisis. Have you ever heard that term, the identity crisis? Unfortunately, many Christians experience this identity crisis because they continually forget who they are in Christ. This morning, we uh, begin a new series in the book of Ephesians, which is technically not a book. It is a, it is a letter. It's an ancient letter written by the Apostle Paul, somewhere around 60, 61 uh, AD, to the church uh, located in the city of Ephesus. And most likely, that letter circulated all around that region as well. And this letter is uh, actually, like the book of Philippians, it's not that big. It's not that large. If you look in your Bibles, it's divided into six chapters. You could easily read it in its entirety in less than like 20 minutes, which I would encourage you as we're going through this series to read, be reading the book of Ephesians. Um, again, you can add reading the entire book uh, to your already uh, Bible study. And, and some in our congregation have actually committed large portions of this letter to memory, which is a, a great idea. But while this letter is relatively short, it is jammed packed with some amazing truth. I mean, it's going to bring up salvation. It's going to bring up grace. It's going to bring up the Holy Spirit's involvement in our lives, the church, what we as a church are supposed to do, the pastors are supposed to do. It brings up racial reconciliation. It brings up relations between husbands and wives and fathers and their children and also brings up spiritual warfare, just to name a few. But at its heart is the truth of our identity in Christ. And Paul uses uh, the, the, the expression in Christ and along with its variations some 30 times in this letter alone. Outside the epistles, he uses it, I think it's like over 100 times. It was a very important phrase, again, because it has to do with our identity. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn, open them up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to warn you because we, we are going to bounce uh, to back and forth from two passages. We're going to look at a book of Philippians, and then we're going to look at a couple of passages in Acts. But our main focus is going to be Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. So if you're already there to Ephesians chapter 1, I'm just going to go ahead and read those first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You couldn't get any more standard as far as ancient letters go. It always begins with a who's, who's the author, who's, who's writing the letter, and then it addresses the recipients, who he's writing to, and then a general greeting. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. And I'm hearing a little whistle. Does anyone hear that? Oh, I got it, Bernie. When in doubt, blame Bernie. And some people do, and uh, I can understand that. Uh, <laughs> All right, Ephesians chapter one, verse one and two. It's just the general introduction. This kind of serves this message serves kind of an introduction to the this uh, uh, amazing book. But let's go back to verse one. It says, "Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus." When we uh, 
learn about Paul. Uh, that wasn't how he was originally referred to. He was originally referred to as Saul. That was what his birth name. He grew up in a city called Tarsus. It was a, a, a pretty well-to-do city, affluent city. Uh, a lot of uh, wealthy individuals lived in that city. And most, it's very probable that Luke grew up, I mean, Luke, Paul uh, grew up um, in, a, in a wealthy family. Uh, but Tarsus was also known as kind of like a college town. It had a number of very uh, famous uh, educational institutions uh, in the city and around the city. And, and it's very possible that uh, Paul, Saul at the time, uh, benefited from that educational environment. I mean, he was a brilliant guy. Eventually, he went to study under the most respected, revered, well-known rabbi, Rabbi Gamaliel, and eventually he himself became a Pharisee, uh, an expert at the law, a, a, a religious leader. And when we first are introduced to Saul, it's actually at the end of uh, chapter 7, where he is overseeing the execution of a Christian named Stephen. In fact, uh, when, it, when chapter 8 begins, it says that Saul heartily agreed to this execution. You see, Saul was so passionate about the law of God and the traditions of, of the religious leaders of that day that he violently persecuted the church. I mean, the Bible describes he went from house to house and dr drug out men and women out and threw them into prison if they were followers of this Christ, of this false Messiah. And, but everything changed when Jesus, the risen Jesus, miraculous, miraculously revealed himself to Saul and uh, Saul's life changed and Saul became a follower of Christ. And eventually he started referring to himself as Paul. People started referring to him as, as Paul. What's interesting, the name Paul means the little one. That's what it means. It means the little one. And sometimes people think it means, it could mean like someone who is little in stature. Some people think that, oh, Paul must have been short in stature. But I find it interesting, if you were to ask Paul prior to Christ how, how he viewed his life, you you know, prior to Christ, what would you think, Paul? And he'd probably say, well, I, I thought I was the bee's knees. I thought I was everything. I thought I was really, really great, really important, really significant uh, to the religious leaders. In fact, go to Philippians. So keep your finger in Ephesians, but we'll go to Philippians chapter 3. In this section, Paul is addressing um, some false teachers who are relying on their own resume, their own accomplishments. He, he refers to the, the works of the flesh. They're, 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 um, they're putting confidence in that. And so what Paul's basically doing here is you want to play the resume game, let's go ahead and bring it on because you're going to lose. And so Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 4, Paul says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Verse five, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. This is the kind of resume that J Jewish men of his day would just kill for. This is what, this is the goal, the ultimate goal. Oh man, 
Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, he circumcised on the eighth day, so his parents obeyed the law. He's from the, the nation of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, very significant tribe, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning uh, uh, Paul never forgot his Hebrew roots as opposed to the rest of the Romanized, Hellenized world. Paul was still very close to his Hebrew roots. He was um, a Pharisee. He was passionate about uh, persecuting the, the church righteous in, in regards to the law he followed all the rules he's like i'm i'm pretty pretty I, i'm something verse seven but whatever things were gained to me those things i have counted as loss for the sake of christ he's using uh accounting language he's basically i'm taking inventory of all my accomplishments things that i would consider of value to me and he says i i consider them now loss for the sake of christ Verse eight, more than that, I count all things to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish is the Greek word skubalon. It's a fun word. It literally means waste. It's, it's either human waste, animal waste. It's basically not the kind of stuff you would want to put on your mantle. Right? You change a, a dirty diaper. Grandparents, parents, you already know. You're not going to put that on the mountain and say, well, this is our pride and joy. Let's put it in the safe to protect it. No. Right? It's just yuck. But that's how Paul is saying, looking at his, at his resume, his life prior to Christ, he thought he was something. Look at my resume. I'm significant. I'm important. I'm, I'm the, the dream of all the people around me. But it's, it has no value anymore. Christ is everything. So, so the, this guy, back to, to our passage in Ephesians, this man, Saul, who might have been quite proud of himself, proud of his accomplishments, when he saw the risen Christ and knew who that risen Christ was, that he was the Lord of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that Saul was humbled and he, in, in his own perception, was little compared to his Savior. I just find that interesting. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. The word apostle, back in our a passage in Ephesians chapter one, the word apostle means a messenger. Uh, if you did a study on this, you, you might've even noticed that it was also used as a nautical term for sailors and, 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 and shipyards, uh, but it became known mainly as a messenger, a delegate, an ambassador, basically someone sent with full authority to deliver a message or speak on behalf of another individual. And that's who Paul was. Paul was a man who had authority. He was commissioned, he says, of Christ Jesus. Christ just seems, simply means the, the anointed one, refers to the Messiah. And when you look at the Old Testament, rich in uh, uh, the, 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 the word Messiah referenced the, the eternal king who was to come. So Paul's saying he's an, an apostle, a messenger of King Jesus, who's his savior by the will of God. In Acts chapter 13, God literally uh, singles out Paul and a, another guy, Barnabas, to go on a mission to proclaim the gospel to uh, the Gentiles. And so that's what Paul did his whole life. He's like, this is what God called me to do. He's going to do it. So he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God uh, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, uh, since this is the beginning of a, a new book and this is not, uh, you know, this is, this is a, a real letter written by a real person to real people in a real location during a real time. 
uh, a time in history. And so it, it does us does as well to kind of get some background information regarding the city of Ephesus because Ephesus was a really significant city in those first in the first century and it influenced a lot of that region and so maybe you don't like history and so you can go ahead and take a nap for the next couple of minutes uh, but what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, the city of Ephesus let me see if I got this yay I got control cool all right so the city of Ephesus in its heyday was called the mother city of Asia because of its influence over politics, commerce, and religion. It was a major uh, port city uh, in the West uh, Asia, so you can kind of see it's right there, right on the coast. Um, Amazing location. That area right there in in, in Paul's time was known as Asia, but now it's known as uh, Turkey. There are a number of major roads that converged onto the city from the north, the south, and east of the city, uh, and this facilitated trade, shipping, and also made the city very diverse. Uh, not only uh, did it include, uh, as far as it's in its population, people from that region, Ionia, Lydia, Phrygia, Mycia, and a lot of Ias, uh, but it also included Romans, Greeks, and a, actually a, a fairly large uh, Jewish population. It was considered the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome in in Italy and Alexandria in Egypt were considered the largest. Um, The population was estimated to be around 200 to 250,000 people. That's pretty pretty big. The, the, the walled portion of Ephesus covered about a thousand acres, um, but there was also little villages and towns outside of Ephesus. So the, again, the, past, the, 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 the population was huge. Because of its thriving economy, which promised opportunities for many people, not just those who are rich, uh, but also those who are lower class, even slaves and, and, and poor individuals, the draw to live in Ephesus was extremely significant. It was one ancient writer uh, described as like Ephesus isn't just a city to visit it's a city to aspire for like every city should aspire for to be like Ephesus we should all desire to live like Ephesus and uh, this is uh, how Ephesus looks nowadays Uh, it is one of the largest and most significant archaeological digs in, in the world right now and uh, they've been they're still uncovering a lot of things this is one of those major roads you can see it's completely uh, stone covered I mean it's it's still in pretty good condition a lot of the archaeologists are, st- are also trying to reconstruct uh, the city as well to kind of give us a better idea of how it looked back then um, but that was kind of what was going on in first century Rome is the whole uh, Pax Romana, the pizza of Rome allowed for these roads to uh, these major highways to be built uh, in and around the empire. Um, this is another shot of another one of those roads. Uh, this is facing uh, what, uh, a theater, a, a huge giant theater. Um, this one is actually from inside the theater. It's estimated to hold at least 25,000 people. And the way it was constructed is so amazing is you could be standing in the middle of that little stage platform area and still be able to be heard all over the place. I mean, just the, again, ingenuity in that time was absolutely incredible. But again, just kind of gives you an idea of how prosperous this city was. It was 
amazing. This is the facade of uh, the Ephesian library. This was actually built towards the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. Uh, a lot of archaeologists have already started to reconstruct uh, this facade. Um, interesting little uh, bit of trivia, uh, just to kind of show you the quality as far as people uh, in that city, um, which wasn't really good, kind of very promiscuous because of all the gods that they served and a lot of temple prostitution. Archaeologists discovered uh, kind of a, it looked like a secret passage uh, leading from the library to one of the uh, temples where there would be temple prostitutes. And so it's kind of like, honey, I'm going to the library. You know, uh, <laughs> but, so it just kind of gives you a little interesting perspective. So um, it was a large uh, city. Now, uh, while Ephesus was a religiously pluralistic city, they believed in many gods and goddesses. In fact, that was how it was all around the Roman Empire. You can believe in anything you wanted so long as you still had held Caesar as Lord. Um, but it, it, what was unique about Ephesus was its devotion to the goddess Artemis. We know him as her, her, this, this god as uh, the goddess Diana. Uh, she was kind of like the patron god of the city. Uh, her temple, uh, which was located just outside the city on this prominent hill, was considered by ancient historians to be one of the seventh wonders of the world. This is an actual recreation uh, of the temple. So it was magnificent. And the reason why we have this recreation is a lot of historians spent a lot of time uh, marking out the details of this temple because they were just floored. It was just amazing. This is so incredible. Uh, right in the middle or inside the actual temple itself, there was a giant statue of uh, the goddess Artemis. And it was supposedly carved out of, a, of an asteroid or a comet that had just crashed, landed. And so it was very sacred. Um, this is what the temple looks like now. Not even impressive, you know. Again, but Jesus' church is still alive and well. Artemis is not. Amen. Um, this is a, a picture of, or a sculpture of Artemis. And now everything about her statue represents how powerful she is. So around the neckline, the little collar area, are signs of the zodiac, which basically show uh, that she has power over fate. She can control people's destinies. Um, right below are kind of these like egg-shaped things. A lot of individuals thought that they referred to like, uh, you know, something of a female anatomy that uh, referred to fertility, but a recent uh, archaeological research has uncovered uh, around Ephesus and that area, the, the or in Ephesus and around that area, uh, people used to put together these little bags, th these magical bags the, made out of goat skins, and they would put magical artifacts into that bag, and then they would either wear it uh, on themselves or post it on their doors or other things. Those bags were meant to uh, protect them, give them favor, and some people would actually wear multiple bags over themselves. And so here, again, Artemis is carrying a whole bunch of these magical little bags showing that she has power to over you know, to control uh, what's going on. Uh, right below, you can kind of see a little bit are some uh, depictions of some scary looking animals. And right behind her on this little halo thing are some other uh, 
scary looking animals. Those will refer to the astral spirits, spirits, evil spirits up in the sky, up in the heavens, and below are the terrestrial spirits, the, the, the evil spirits on the ground, and they're mean, they're snarling. But what's interesting is even the ones on the, on the top, their arms are lifted up in uh, submission. And again, it's just showing that Artemis has control and power over these uh, terrestrial and celestial spirits. Just giving an idea of how powerful uh, you know, uh, Artemis was. Um, processions would happen twice a week going from the temple of Artemis throughout the city as people paraded her icon, her statue uh, throughout the, the, the city of Ephesus. Olympic-style games were held in her honor. A month was named after her. Uh, Artemis was referred to as the Queen of Heaven, the Lord and Savior. The city was also most notably recognized as a center for the practice of magic. This is the idea of harnessing good and evil, you know, using good magic and bad magic, kind of like a yin and yang kind of thing to, you know, uh, manipulate uh, the, your world around. And, and uh, there, it was also uh, heavily... Um, so they practice ma- magic and they also practice sorcery. This is the idea of casting spells and even curses. Uh, one of the, the most famous um, books of magic is called the Ephesia Grammata. This is a copy of it. And it's just a collection of spells and magical practices that you can uh, participate in. It was a very common uh, book that a lot of individuals had. And notice it, it is like a book. This is what we, they called in the ancient times a codex. A codex mean, meant it wasn't a, a scroll rolled up. It was actually like, you know, written on this page and another page. They were difficult to, to put assemble and very expensive to make and purchase. And so these were really, really precious to them. So on top of magic and sorcery, there was also folk mysticism. You know, this is kind of the idea of superstition. Uh, and in fact, the Jewish population actually fell into this category. They would invoke the names of various angels to just you know, protect them, to give them favor, and that kind of thing. Again, why am I telling you this? Because it's good to have a background. This, these are the people that Paul ministered to. The, this is the city that the Christians were living in at that time. And so having an understanding, as we, especially as we continue through the book of Ephesians, you're going to see a lot of language that the Ephesians would have been very familiar with regarding even their magical practices and sorcery. So uh, Paul visited uh, this, um, this city uh, in the book of Acts. We, we find him visiting the city in, in the book of Acts chapter 18, but he visits very briefly. He's on his way to Jerusalem, but his, his, his intention is after he visits Jerusalem, he's going to swing back to Ephesus and he's going to spend more time there. In fact, when he got back to Ephesus, he stayed there for three years longer than any other place he ministered to. He stood there three years. And the reason for that, uh, he put in his uh, letter to the Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 16, uh, Paul's saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to go visit you in, in the you know, church in Corinth. He says, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective service has opened to me. 
And so Paul's like, I got to stay here. I got to keep on preaching the word. And, and, and in fact, the Bible talks about uh, with in regards to Paul's ministry in Ephesus that everywhere in all of, you know, in, in Asia, people heard uh, the word of the Lord because of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. It just kind of spread out through what, like wildfire. So let's go uh, real quick to, to Acts. Book of Acts chapter 19. Again, Paul was in Ephesus for three years, but we're only given a few glimpses of, of some uh, of major events that happened in his ministry. And so I'd like to go ahead and, and start at... Uh, verse 11 of Acts chapter 19. So again, Paul has been serving, ministering in Ephesus. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul so that cloths or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. Now, just real quick, because we no doubt have watched televangelists declare, I'm just going to wipe the grease off of my head, and if you just sow your seed of $1,000, I will take a piece of this cloth and send it to you, and you will be blessed, you know? Um, I was actually interested in starting a ministry like that. No, I was playing. Uh, No. (laughs) Very lucrative business. Um, but a lot of those, in, those, those televangelists point to this scripture as evidence, like see, to validate their ministry. Look, it's okay for me to do that. They fail to understand there's a difference between descriptive and prescriptive. Descriptive is just describing what hap- happened. Prescriptive means it's something that you should, be, you should keep on doing, should be normative. The book of Acts is a narrative, which means a lot of it is descriptive. And so what, what, what is happening here is uh, Luke, who's writing this, is just describing the kind of ministry that's happening. And I want to just point to one word here, verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles. That word there means to be like singled out. This is very unique. This, the, the, these miracles were unlike other miracles that were happening at that time. That's, that's what Luke is trying to emphasize here. And it makes sense why God would display his power so magnificently. Because again, where's Paul at this time? In the city of Ephesus, steeped in the belief of, of Artemis and magic and sorcery and casting spells and re, you know, trying to harness the powers of all the, the, the you know, nature and the elements. And so God is basically displaying his power and saying, look, my power is beyond that. And, and, and what's interesting is the, no one actually focuses on Paul. They all focus their attention on God, but we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, verse 13, but also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to invoke over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus saying, I implore you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. You know, so they recognized the power of Jesus as opposed to their power. And so they're, 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 they're invoking the name of Jesus. So this will work. Verse 14. Now seven sons of one named Sceva, that's an interesting name. He was a Jewish a chief priest. We're doing this. So they're going around invoking the name, you know, we implore you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Verse 16. And the man in whom was the evil spirit, 
So this is a demon-possessed guy. He leapt on them, subdued all of them, and utterly prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, folks, if you enter a fight, you know, with all of your clothes and everything all right, and then you leave bleeding and naked, that's what we call a beatdown, right? That's a beatdown. These guys got the clothes literally beat off of them. They're running away naked. Notice verse 17. And this became known to all both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon them all. And the name of Paul? No, the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. See, people were recognizing it wasn't because of Paul. It was God working in and through Paul. It was the Lord Jesus Verse 18, also, many of those who had believed, these are individuals who who put their faith in Christ, kept coming, confessing, disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together. So interesting, again, shows you they had been living in this environment and they've attached their identity so much in these magical practices that even after coming to Christ, they still find it necessary to read the Ephesia Grimada, still cast spells, still put on those little magical uh, bags and, and, and you know, all those things. But now, because of the display of power that God is showing, they're going, oh, wow. You know, they're, they're, they're confessing. And look, they, they bring their, they're, they're bringing their books together and we're burning them in the sight of everyone. That's pretty significant. He's like, hey, listen, this this... This book of magic spells, which is very, we consider sacred and uh, is very expensive, very valuable in our society. I don't need it. Burns it. Very significant. And, and they counted up the price of them and found it uh, 50,000 pieces of silver. That's 50,000 days wages worth. So that, again, just shows you how much money was being just spent. That's a huge, huge, big deal going on. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Skip over to um, verse 23. Here's another moment. And about that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. Now, that was another phrase that they used to describe people who were followers of Christ. And some scholars still debate why it was get called the way. Uh, most likely Jesus referred to himself as the way, the truth and the life. And so that's could, could have been why they were called the way. So there was no, there was no small disturbance concerning those of the way, those who were followers of Jesus. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. Why? Because no one's buying any of his art, his, his little shrines of, you know, models of, of Artemis. They're no longer worshiping her anymore. These he gathered together with the workers of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity is from this business. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable crowd saying that things made with hands are not God's. And not only, this, not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be considered as worthless and that she, whom all of Asia and the world worship, is even about to be brought down from her majesty. When they heard this, 
They were filled with rage. They began crying out and saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion. In fact, you keep on reading, an, a riot almost breaks, um, breaks out. And uh, you know that, that auditorium, let me see if I can maybe go back to there. This uh, theater, that's where the riot kind of builds up into. So it's, you can imagine tons of people, lots of confusion. People are blaming and who, oh, what's going on? They, for like two hours, a few hours, start proclaiming great as Artemis of Ephesus. Eventually the riot is uh, uh, calmed down and Paul's like, okay, it's probably best for me to keep on, you know, moving on. Um, and if you go to chapter 20, um, Paul decides to, he has one last word to say to the Ephesian elders, but he's, he doesn't say it to them in Ephesus because obviously there must have been a lot of tension there, um, but he, he has them meet him uh, in, in Miletus. So uh, chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, Paul said to them, you yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials, which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound by the spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me except that the Holy Spirit solemnly solemnly testifies to me that in every city, saying that chains and afflictions await me. But I do not make my life of any account, nor dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all, all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on your guard, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Paul eventually goes to Jerusalem. He gets arrested. He, he is a Roman citizen, so he appeals to, to have his case examined in Rome. They send him to Rome, and now he's in prison in Rome. And he sits down to write a number of letters to different churches, Philippi, Colossians, the city in Colossae, um, um, Philemon, and now also the letter to the Ephesians. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 1. So who's the author? The author is Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints. Now I want to just stop it there, the word saint. Many 
many have a misunderstanding of the word saint. They don't really know what it gets. They have a misconception of what it means to be a saint. If you were to ask the rest of the world, what is a saint? Or who, is a, you know, what would, you do, who would you describe as a saint? They'd probably say, oh, someone who's exemplary. You know, someone who's got their act together. Someone who does little to no wrong. Someone who's loving and kind and generous and helps the poor as a part of all these humanitarian causes. They're a saint. If you were to ask a Catholic, they would say, well, you know, there's, it's, it's describing an individual who's gone through a whole slew of different steps. You know, first, they have to be a Catholic, you know, and, and then they have to die. Uh, and then, then a, 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 a following has to, you know, develop around their memory. And then for some reason, a miracle has to happen in their name and the Vatican has to, you know, validate that miracle. Some money is spent, like, couple million dollars, processes, praying, of course. Another miracle happens, and then that gets validated by the Vatican. Eventually, finally, it goes to the Pope. The Pope puts his seal of approval and says, this person is now a saint. Now they can be venerated. Now they can be prayed to. They can have schools made, named after them. That's what it means to be, a, to be a saint. When the Bible mentions saints, he's not referring to people who are exemplary. He's not referring to people who've got their act together. He's not referring to individuals who are known worldwide by humanitarian groups. Nor is he referring to individuals who have been validated by the Vatican or Pope. When the Bible mentions saints, he's refer, it's referring to those who have placed their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. Because he says here in Ephesians, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The word faithful is pistos. It just means uh, uh, those who are believing or those who put their trust, in, in this case, in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is not mentioning two groups of Christians here. He's not referring to some, you know, exemplary Christians and some standard Christians. You know, these exemplary Christians are saints. These are just believers. No. Grammatically, it reads, to, those, to the saints who continually exist, not only in Ephesus, but also as believers in Christ. So saints are continually existing as believers in Christ, those trusting in Christ. Similarly, those who are trusting in Christ, continually trusting in Christ, are saints. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are in Christ, as Paul brings up, you are a saint. I'm going to go ahead and read a, a couple of passages. These are some hard-hitting passages. Don't need to turn with me to these passages. If you want the list, I can give you the list afterwards. But I just want you to listen to these passages, okay? Because I, I want to bring up the impact, why this, this truth of you are a saint in Christ is so incredible. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Did the flood fix that? No, no. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it? Romans chapter, five, chapter 2, verse 5. 
referring to those who are still continuing to be in their sin. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judge, righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And finally, in Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 through 11, referring to individuals who continue to stubbornly uh, not follow Christ, instead follow the beast and take his mark, says he will also, those who who are doing this, following the beast, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, if those verses don't put a chill up your spine, I don't know what will. Like, ooh, that's just nasty. It's hard-hitting. Here's the point. These hard-hitting passages, for those who are followers of Christ, these hard-hitting passages no longer apply to us. Some of you really need to let that soak in. These hard-hitting passages, receiving wrath and judgment no longer apply to us who are followers of Jesus, who are in Christ. In the book of Leviticus, God is, is, is talking to the people and he says, you know, you Israel are to be holy because I am holy. If you keep on reading the Old Testament, did they succeed? No. No, they failed miserably. But here's the truth, because of Jesus, because of us being in Christ, trusting in Christ, the holiness that Israel failed to pursue is now a reality for true Christians. We are holy, we are set apart, we are dedicated, we are consecrated for the service of the Lord. We are saints. We are saints. The unfortunate teaching that's going around in in many, many churches is, um, you know, prior to being a believer and follower of Christ, you're a sinner. Now, there's nothing wrong with that teaching. That's very true. If you're not follower of Christ, if you're not in Christ, you are a sinner. But the teaching goes on to say, once you receive salvation, now you're no longer just a sinner, you're a sinner that has been forgiven. Now, I guess you can argue, argue technically that's true, but they tease this out to the point where it gives the idea of a Christian having two natures, almost two identities, that of a sinner and that of a forgiven, that of, of an individual in Christ. And that these two natures, these two identities are constantly at war with each other. And they would cite Romans chapter seven as an example. So see, see, a Christian has two natures. Nowhere in the Bible does that teach that. You're either a sinner or you're a saint. You're either a child of the devil or you're a child of God. You never have two natures. You, again, you look through the scripture. Whenever the Bible talks about followers, true followers of Jesus, Paul declares that you are a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new. In Colossians, he says, your, your old self has died and your new self, your new nature, your new identity is hidden in Christ Jesus. In Romans, he says that because now we have the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Because of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us, now we can say no to sin. We have the power to say no to sin. Sin is no longer our identity. Sin no longer has the final say. This is the first taste of what it means to have our identity in Christ. Right here, we are saints. We are saints. We have to remember, we don't live for our our identity. We don't live for our identity. We live from our identity. I'll give you a tragic example. There was this young woman who grew up in a very messed up home. She was physically abused by her grandfather because the parents used to live at the, the grandparents' house. And she, every night when she was young, all the way until I think she was in high school, beginning of high school, was assaulted by her grandfather every night before she went to bed. And she grew up and made a lot of poor choices. We went from one bad relationship to another bad relationship to another bad relationship and so on and so forth. And she was uh, attending this church and finally um, got some counsel from the pastor and his wife. And they were hearing her story and they finally just asked her, you know, why, why do you feel compelled? Why do you constantly move from one loser to another? And her response was, I'm a dirty girl, and so I do dirty things. That was the identity that her grandfather would tell her every night. You're a dirty girl, and so you do dirty things. That was her identity, and she lived out of that identity. That influenced how she, the decisions that she made, the choices of men that she, she pursued. I'm a dirty girl. But then she came to Christ and discovered her new identity in Christ. And she realized, I'm no longer that. I'm now a saint. I'm now holy. I'm now set apart. I'm now a child of God. I have an amazing father. My father, my earthly father was never there to protect me. My heavenly father will always be there. I am in Christ. And that changed everything for her. When it comes to us being a saint, we do not live our lives in such a way to achieve our sainthood. No, we're already saints if we're followers of Jesus. And so what do we do? We just live in light of that. We just live in light of that. In fact, when you look at the book of Ephesians, six chapters, it's divided into two sections. The first three chapters give all the information of who you are in Christ. Give all the information of your identity in Christ, what Christ has done for you and what he, what he is working in you and through you. The rest of the book is living in light of that identity. Because you are now in Christ and this is all true of you, now this is how you live. It's not the opposite way around. It's not like you need to live this way in order to be this. It's like, no, no, no. You're in Christ. You're a saint. Now go ahead and live it. It's amazing truth. Amazing, amazing truth. And he closes up the, 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 the opening of Ephesians with this. 
Grace to you and peace from God and Father, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two amazing words right there. Grace, charis, it means undeserved favor, kindness, goodness. Now, again, Paul is writing to followers of Jesus. That's really important, especially as we get into uh, next week's um, uh, section of Scripture. Paul is writing to believers in Christ. So when he b- brings up this idea of grace, it's not the kind of grace that um, influences salvation. Now that he's going to bring that up in chapter two. What he's talking about is a, gr- a grace that preser- preserves and keeps us. A grace that we as Christians desperately need every single day. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter four. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might, may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh man, we need this. Amen? And that's what Paul's praying. He's praying that you, church in Ephesus, by extension, us, church here in Cascade, would receive grace. We've already experienced that grace and salvation. Praise God for that. But we need to experience every single day. Then he brings up the word peace, which means harmony, tranquility, being undisturbed. Now again, This is not referring to peace with God. No, again, because he's talking to to believers. In Romans chapter 5, verse 2, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not talking about peace with God. This is talking about receiving the peace of God. This is the same kind of peace that we read about, read about in Philippians a couple of months back when, when um, Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplications, let your uh, uh, requests be made known to God and the God of peace will be with you, will comfort you. The God who, remember, it's, it's, it's uh, peace that is beyond comprehension. It's experiencing peace when it doesn't make sense to experience peace. Now, those two words, grace and peace, these two words would have really resonated with the people of the Christians in Ephesus, right? Because again, think of the city that they're living in. It's a dark, evil city. You know, in the eyes of everyone else, oh, it's the shiny beacon of the the Roman Empire. But for Christians, we know the truth, and they were like, oh, this is a wicked place, full of a lot of, you know, paganism and, and promiscuity, not only that, but Nero at the time was starting to tighten the belt against the Christians and Rome, they, they were experiencing more and more persecution from Rome. So hearing those two words, Paul's like, may you have grace and peace in your life. It's like, ah, oh, yes, amen. It's like we right now in, in, the, in the world that we're living in right now, we're like, oh yes, Lord, we need that grace and peace every single day, right? We need it. Here's amazing, that, that, something that's amazing, that, that grace and that peace comes from God, our Father. God is our Father. He's not some distant cosmic being who has no interest in our lives. No, he is our 
personal father. We are his children. It's amazing. Our God is our father and Jesus Christ is our Lord. He's our master. He's our savior. He is our king. Again, this two verses here just gives us a little taste of what it means to have our identity in Christ. If you're in Christ, you are a saint. And we are gonna spend, I don't know, however long God wills, going through this and just dissecting what does, it, what does being in Christ really mean? And it's gonna be amazing. I'm excited to do that. So in closing, let's go ahead and pray. And then we'll go ahead and sing one last song. Let's go ahead and pray. So Father, we thank you again for this word. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing the work that you did in and through this city of Ephesus. How just because Paul's obedience and faithfulness to your calling, the gospel spread throughout all of Asia. Lord, um, may we continually um, um, may we continually be um, faithful to our calling in you. May we continually be obedient. Lord, the, this amazing truth of for those who are in Christ, we are saints is amazing. No longer are we uh, defined by our sins, our past sins, our, our present sins, our future sins, Lord. Sin no longer defines us. It may describe something we do sometimes, but it does, it no longer defines us. We are no longer defined by who people say we are or what has been done to us. We are defined by being in Christ. We are saints. Help us to live as such. Lord, there may be individuals listening online or here in, the, in, this, in this room who have never made a decision to follow you. And Lord, those, those hard-hitting passages that were read in Genesis and in Revelation, Lord, those passages still apply to them. I pray that they would re realize their terrible position, that they, they are not, they're not, of you they're of the enemy and they are storing up for themselves wrath I pray Lord that they would be convicted and make a decision to follow you trust you completely you are a good 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 God a God who gives us grace and a God who gives us peace so thank you again for this word may you help us this week not attach our, our, our identity to anything else other than you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.